0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Northeast Law Review podcast. My name is Neve. I'm Matt. And today we're going to be talking about competition law with Dr. David Reza, lecturer in EU and competition law here at Newcastle University. Welcome to the podcast, Dave.
1: Thanks very much for having me, guys.
0: How are you? How are you doing? It's the final um, couple of weeks of lockdown. How have they been for you?
1: I'm not too bad it's just I'm trying to get some perspective on life at the moment because it's been such a strange year I'm, I'm trying to take the positives and look forward now it seems to be some kind of light at the end of the tunnel but um, whenever someone asks me now how are you I used to think they're just i oh, just being polite and saying hi now I feel the need to give a detailed answer mm-hmm. on questions like that but I'll, I'll try not to give one here.
2: Yeah how have you found the switch to online learning generally in online teaching?
1: It has. I think that may have been Matt, one of the positives of all of this, because um, I think in thinking of the future, there's a great deal of opportunity to use um, online uh, teaching and learning methods. And certainly, that was something I, when I arrived for the first time at Newcastle, I was looking to integrate into my own sessions. And I mean, you perhaps know how things sometimes can be in any place of work, but there's a lot of red tape to get through in order to get something over the line with lockdown it's almost sort of forced the hand i think of the powers that be to get us to a stage which may have well have taken two or three years mm. and uh, so yeah there's been great um, opportunities to use things that we've never used before um i've had experience in the past of using um, zoom sessions in my um, other teaching role at uh, melbourne law school um, and so that's been an easier transition But, um, you know, I think that it's fun to use things like uh, podcasts and recorded videos and uh, give us a bit more flexibility, which is, I think, what students will need more of in the future. So, yeah, looking to the positives, Matt.
2: Yeah.
0: Oh great. So um, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit to the podcast, Dave? Um, So where did you grow up? What's your university and postgraduate career been?
1: Yeah, so I uh, grew up, up, I suppose I'd say I was born and raised in Kent, a quaint little village in the countryside, uh, so never really saw the big city life. Uh, I very rarely uh, ventured north of um, Sevenoaks. So to me, when the family went to London, that was travelling to the north, uh so it's been a bit of a culture shock uh when i finally started uh the the role in newcastle but um yeah my my uh university studies uh, started at uh, the university of stanglia the law school there where i um studied law at undergraduate level um a, one of my third year options was in competition law and um sparked an interest in me. I I knew I wanted to specialise in a corporate law subject, but wasn't sure exactly what. Um, And this coincided with the uh, financial crisis. And so job opportunities seemed to be few and far between. And I thought, let's take the opportunity to do a master's in this subject. So I enrolled on a master's at UEA in international competition law. Um, That introduced me to the Centre for Competition Policy, which is a specialist physical body at um, the University of Stanglia, Um, one of the, you'd say, European leaders, I think, in um, competition research, fell in love with the place, and things happened, so uh, ultimately enrolled on a PhD in competition law um, at um, the Centre for Competition Policy and at um, UEA Law School, and I have yeah in amongst studying for and, and researching for the PhD. I also worked as a research associate and a senior research associate at the CCP. Finally left, finally, some people might say left in uh, 2018. Uh, and that's when I took up the role at the Newcastle Law School um, on a teaching contract, um, having been in research for a, quite a while. And um, that's, that's where I am now as a lecturer in law. Cool.
2: I was just going to ask one quickly thing. You mentioned about um, studying the Masters or going on to it in the period when there was the financial crash. Would, because I feel like I, this is more of a question for personally, it's a similar sort of scenario at the minute in terms of obviously the economy and jobs and whatnot. Would you recommend doing a Masters um, during this sort of period if there's like a good step sort of in a, yeah, I guess we're in a period when there is shorts shortest of
1: jobs and um, I think that's a brilliant question Matt and I had um, the same question posed to me a few times at the end of last year um, including from my some of my personal tutees. Um my response was that you know I'd never look to influence someone in terms of uh, you know say you must you must do a, uh, yeah. a masters in law but um, from my own experience I had nothing but positive experiences on my masters at UEA, um, including meeting some people that really guided me through uh, my academic career so far. Um, uh, So, you know, people uh, who were at UEA who have um, since moved elsewhere, like uh, Pinar Ackman, who's now at the University of Leeds, and uh, Peter Whelan, also at the University of Leeds, who really um, took me under their wing in some respects um, to sort of guide me in my research. Um, equally, uh, people that are still at UEA, such as Andreas Stefan, Michael Harker, Morton Vid, um, many others, um, and you know who who acted sort of um, supervised parts of my PhD, and um, people like Efs yeah, um, Sven Galash, who was at UEA, who's moved to Melbourne. These are people that you know I really owe a lot to, and I would not have met had I uh, not had the opportunity to undertake a um, a master's uh, when there didn't really seem to be that many jobs in the market. I also met uh, some of my best friends on the master's and uh, remain very close to me to this day. I include my best friend amongst that. So um, I personally can say nothing but positive things about my experience. And um, I guess I was also um, mindful about what I wanted to do in my own career. Um, At that point, maybe practice was still on the agenda, but I learned from it that Academia really set off a spark in me, and something I just wanted. I just wanted answers to more questions, have the opportunity to answer them, and so it led me into academia. But I know of others on my uh, master's cohort who are now trailblazing, doing fantastic jobs in practice. So it really is something that anyone can excel in. And I, although I wouldn't talk anyone into one, I, you know, I'd certainly be very happy for any of my students to enroll on one. That's interesting.
2: So
0: you mentioned you're on a uh, teaching contract. What, what is that like and how is it different from a research contract?
1: It's a lot of fun. Uh, so my, as I say, my background is and was purely in uh, research, very, very little teaching, and um, short of maybe the odd lecture or seminar here and there. Um, so I imagined that things would be very different once I moved on to a teaching contract at Newcastle even though I'd always been in a predominantly research-based role, um, I you know, I found myself enjoying researching individual topics. And um, you know, so there were, there were topics uh, broadly in competition law, which um, I'd sort of dabbled in, and I would like to have, have the opportunity to go into more detail on. Teaching seemed to be the best of both worlds. It actually gave me a chance to really focus on putting together materials uh, for particular topics um, I'd w- when I saw yeah the the role at Newcastle uh, became available it was um, as you said neve um, described as you know, lecturer for competition and EU law uh, so for me um, co- seeing competition immediately uh, sparked my interest um, I'd visited Newcastle for a conference on competition law. Some years prior, and had um, you know, a great experience of the place. Actually, got to see the uh, the law library, which I think one of the most fantastic facilities we have at the law school, That's and uh, quite rare for a university to have its own uh, law library, and that was brilliant. Also, uh, got a sense for the area and the people, and so in the end, I wouldn't say it was a no-brainer, but it was it's you know certainly made uh, the decision a lot easier for me. Generally speaking, there's a lot of similarity between a teaching and a research contract. They both allow you to have time for teaching and research and scholarship. And it's great that the university recognized that both types of contracts are equally valuable and both extremely valuable. And you'd yeah imagine that a, you know, a research contract tends to you know, carve out a little bit more time for working on research projects but I've still been encouraged on my contract to uh, allocate time to research. Even though they're not large substantial projects, opportunities come along to put something together for a particular case or um, to comment on a shift in policy or a uh, piece of law reform. That's um, certainly tied me over. There's also been pieces of research I have in the pipeline which I've been able to publish since I arrived here so, I think the main difference, Neve, is probably that move away from large projects and onto smaller projects. Uh, but otherwise, really, teaching still gives you those opportunities to really make a contribution in the research field.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much for that. I guess that provides a nice segue onto us talking about the first piece of material. Um, that you brought with you, which is the book chapter that you wrote. Um, Do you want to discuss a little bit about that? What was it for? What was your chapter about?
1: Yeah, so this is uh, a book chapter for an edited collection, which is to be published by Oxford University Press uh, in 2021. And it's titled, The UK Competition Regime, A 20-Year Retrospective. And as the name suggests, it's a reflection on the past 20 years of competition law enforcement in the UK, mostly regarding enforcement under the Competition Act of 1998 and the Enterprise Act of 2002. My contribution is a chapter on the experience of merger control in the UK um, under the Enterprise Act. And in terms of what the chapter seeks to do. Under the Enterprise Act, uh, it formally confirmed two things. The first is that mergers in the UK were to be assessed according to competition criteria rather than uh, public interest criteria. And the second is that in 99% of cases, uh, it would be competition authorities that are uh, applying the criteria and coming up with the decisions on whether a merger should be permitted or blocked or remedies should be sought. Um, that's rather than a politician taking that role, rather than the Secretary of State taking that role. So the chapter essentially seeks to review how successful that Enterprise Act regime has been, um, how it, how it successful it's approved to be in practice. And in practice, it has been largely successful, and it's um, seen as a positive uh, worldwide, uh, the UK regime, has had to be retuned somewhat. Uh, The biggest reform has been under the Enterprise and Regulatory Reform Act in 2013. This is perhaps what the chapter spends most time discussing. Uh, The Enterprise and Regulatory Reform Act uh, introduced new powers for the Competition Authority to prevent firms integrating their businesses while an investigation was still ongoing. That's a big issue in the UK because in the UK there's no requirement for merging firms to actually notify the competition authority that they are merging and what that leads to typically um, in some instances is a scrambling of the eggs. uh, Two firms begin to integrate their businesses and as you know with scrambled eggs it's pretty tricky to unscramble them this has caused a lot of headaches for um, authorities so new powers were introduced to uh, allow the competition authority to uh, prevent integration whilst the investigation was ongoing uh, those reforms also revised time limits in order to streamline the merger process there are also mechanisms introduced that were supposed to make it easier for firms to propose so-called undertakings in lieu uh, of a merger being referred for more in-depth competition scrutiny. So that's where firms can offer, for example, to sell off parts of its business in order to appease the competition authority of any concerns it may have over the potential for the merger to be anti-competitive. The other significant part of the paper is essentially testing those reforms to see whether empirically they are effective whether those proved to be effective and for the most part again they have been.
2: I was going to ask um, so it's a book chapter um, and when I'm writing essays even as an undergraduate student sometimes I get a bit sort of anxious that I might have missed sort of uh, parts of because the actual topic, I'm a bit scared that I might miss the things that just have to definitely be in there. Um, so when you write a chapter, because obviously it's you want to cover, you know, pretty much whatever that topic is in full completion, from full detail, not miss out, you know, key cases or whatnot or key things. Um, so what's that like? Do you ever sort of what's what's it like writing a chapter and and, and being sort of aware that you need to make sure that you've got everything in
1: yeah the, and fantastic question Matt this uh, so I, I should uh, say a uh, full, full disclosure I had never previously written a book chapter oh, I've wow. written a number of uh, PhD chapters before that was probably the closest I came to something like this but uh, the thing with uh, a book chapter is you're mindful of the fact that you are writing individually but you're also writing as part of an edited volume for the most part the I mean the really hard work is done by the editors themselves I was really well supported by the editors I can say a little bit more about that later but with regards to your question about how really you go about scoping something like Mm. this you're you feel a little bit like a kid in the candy store when you are told to write on your specialist topic, 14,000 words. So I could have cherry picked all manner of different issues, uh, but still for a 20 year reflection on how Mm. merger control has played out in practice in the UK, you could write an entire PhD on that. So I really had to be mindful about what I wanted to focus on and For the most part, I think I wanted to have something that was timely, have something which, although was reflecting on the history, the modern day history of merger control, could be referred to in another 20 years time by someone to get a feel for what the thinking, the prevailing views were like at that moment in time. So I wanted to really use this chapter as a snapshot. Uh, I'm very mindful of the fact that some of the things I will say in this chapter uh, make predictions which may very well not come true. Uh, The concerns I raise may very well not prove to be concerns at all, but I was dead set on articulating a, uh, a clear perception of what life is like at this moment in time and what academic and practitioner thinking is, uh, so that's probably where I geared my research to in preparation for the chapter Matt and beyond that also uh, geared my my specific focus uh, in the in the chapter on so I I mean we'll wait and see whether I did indeed achieve that but uh, that's why I wanted I wanted the chapter to have more of a shelf life so if I were to write with just crystal ball gazing in mind then it's very likely that even by the time the uh, the book is published that some of my ideas may be outdated but I think this is something which strikes that balance between historical reflection and then using that as part of the forward-looking uh, account of how things may end up being
0: and build it building on that I guess um you say it's been published in 2021 and by that point we we the transition period um between us the Britain leaving uh the European Union is going to end. How did this, of uh, like, how did this change how you wrote the chapter? If it changed how you wrote it at all? Yep,
1: yeah, brilliant question, Neve. That when I yeah when I'm thinking about Crystal Ball case, and I think as we all think about Brexit, uh, it's it's so difficult really to establish exactly what is going to happen. Uh, we may have anticipated some answers at this point. My understanding, or the understanding in uh, competition law circles, is that at least for the time being, merger control and the competition rules will remain consistent with uh, what is currently provided for in the Competition Act and the Enterprise Act, which is in itself mostly a replication of what you find in the the treaty provisions at the EU level, certainly for the case of competition rules, not so much for the case of merger control, but still, I I think that's uh, something I wanted to bring light to in the chapter. But um, as, as you guys both say in your questions, really, um, we are sort of struggling at this moment in time to know exactly what competition law would look like, what merger control would look like in the UK uh, in a year's time in two years time and three years time and and beyond that in my particular area of research around merger control and foreign investment this has actually been one area of law where successive governments now have been more vocal and have been more ready to legislate uh, before Brexit has even taken place and there are currently proposals in line to introduce new legislation around how uh foreign investment into the u k and uh mergers that raise national security cases will be dealt with in the future, and that's quite separate to uh, just brexit and so I, I suppose that's where I wanted to angle the paper towards so that again it had more of a shelf life i guess neve
0: that's great, thank you What was the most challenging part about writing your chapter, and what was the most rewarding part as well?
1: I think that it, again, sort of harks back to, to Matt's earlier question. It's uh, what to pick when you've got 14,000 words and you've got 20 years to reflect on. You really just want to deal with as much as you can. But um, I found myself scoping, rescoping, re rescoping the structure of that chapter changed 18 times because I I know that because I have uh, a version 18 document of the structure. The title probably changed four times. Uh, And so I was, and I think the the more I was reading and the the more often I uh, was putting words down on paper, the more I began to realize that, um, certain things were worth talking about more than others there are certainly other procedural issues I wanted to cover in the chapter uh, which I wasn't able to but I do have uh, something like I think nearing four and a half thousand words uh, of content that ultimately didn't make the final cut but which could still make for another interesting paper uh, further down the line so that was perhaps the biggest challenge neve with regards to what was the most rewarding part of it, I guess it's, I guess it is that it is my best effort. I could not have done more on this chapter and that's despite everything. That's despite the pandemic, despite the move to online teaching, despite leaving all my notes in the office. It was um, not the experience I initially intended when I signed up for the chapter. Chapters, they have a, a timeline of um, submissions uh, attributed to them. And it was probably this time last year, so November of 2019, when the book was first confirmed. And so that was the point where you know I felt I could start writing and researching for the chapter. But I was also wary that really, the only prolonged periods of time I have uh, to research are over Christmas and over Easter. So unfortunately I was unwell over Christmas, so that was immediately a write-off. And then when it came to Easter, despite putting some things in place and uh, doing initial literature search, uh, we all know what happened at Easter with regards to the first lockdown. And at that point, this is true of you know, all staff and students, it was all hands on deck. Uh, we had to think about ways that uh, we could get teaching online for the, uh, the post-Easter period, and it was a lot of work. It was a lot of tough work, and um, I think that any suggestion of there being a nine-to-five you know, working day at that point was out of the window, and that really did consume a lot of time. So I felt I was really on the back foot from that moment onwards. I still had hope before Easter that um, things would be manageable, But I owe a lot to my editors, the editors of that book, and in particular, one editor who really coached me along the way. He was there for support via email, encouraging me along, telling me not to worry despite my anxieties, and uh, just just checking in just to see if I was okay, putting my well-being really before uh, the submission of the chapter itself. Were it not for that, I would likely not have... um, submitted but also I wouldn't have enjoyed it and I never actually felt when it came to the point we had such a tight deadline such a tight turnaround that I could enjoy the research and writing process which is sad because when you research on a specialist area of yours that should be you know one of the highlights of your year Um, and I'm pleased that it did turn out to be that and so that was again something very satisfying. Yeah, it's
2: really good to hear. Obviously, it's been a tough year for a lot of people, but it is good to hear little stories like that. I hope like you're doing well with your book um, chapter. Um, I was going to ask the last sort of question about the book. Um, would you like to write more chapters for books in the future and or and or maybe even write your own book?
1: It's a, That's a scary question, Matt. <laughs> I think if you had you asked me that immediately after submission, when I probably slept for 36 hours... Uh, I'd, my answer would have been different to the answer I'm going to give you, but now I'm thinking, you know, it is satisfying once you've got uh, you know, a large piece of work like that together. Um, and I call that a large piece of work. I mean, think about the editors and the uh, the work they have in compiling all of these. But yeah, for sure, you know, I, I might wait a little bit of time uh, before yep. getting to the, onto the next one. But uh, I think that a book chapter it does give you a little bit more license over articles to. Um, engage with a sort of more plentiful array of issues. I think maybe perhaps, although they're not true across the board, uh, an article will give you the word count and the scope to maybe consider one or two legal issues in detail. Whereas um, you tend to get a little bit more license in say a 14,000 word uh, book chapter to um, you know just experiment with a number of different methods and um, go off on and set maybe potentially several different narratives in uh, different sections so I think that um, my book chapter is probably three articles in one it, they they are different snapshots in time really one being looking back one being the present and one being looking future looking into the future with regards to writing my own book I have attempted that a couple of times and on both occasions where you sit down to write the proposal you um, My mind goes straight to thinking about, oh, well, I hadn't actually thought about that for a while. And within half an hour, I've got not a plan for a book chapter, um, but yeah, not a plan for a book chapter, but a plan for an academic article. And so on both occasions where I've sat down to put a proposal together, they have ended up with a few months later, me having an article together to submit to uh, a journal but ultimately, I'd love to have the discipline to not do that and to, yes. you know, uh, just to, you know, if I had an opportunity to carve out maybe just a little bit more research time, because I think when you're when you've got a big volume, like a big project like that of work to do as part of a book, um, I think a period of time, maybe possibly a sort of sabbatical to um, try and have a solid run at it uh, would be very beneficial and so I will at some point get around to putting a, well, having a third attempt to at put in a proposal together for a book.
0: No, that's great. And I think that wraps up talking about uh, your book chapter quite nicely. Um, so I guess we can move on to your blog post, which um, will be linked in the description of the podcast. Um, so all our listeners could go and have a read either before we have a chat or just after the podcast. But Dave... Do you want to explain a little bit about the article when it was written and what it was about?
1: So, yeah, um, this is a blog post that um, I wrote a couple of years ago now. I mean, crikey, coming up to three years ago um, at the beginning of 2018. Um, At the time, I was still working at the Centre for Competition Policy at UEA, and we have this fantastic blog um, at the Centre for Competition Policy, uh, the Competition Policy blog, uh, which is edited by Andreas Stefan and Bruce Lyons, who are both at the CCP. This particular blog post was related to a merger that was uh, taking place uh, between uh, Melrose, who are um, a company that are known for investing in firms and taking over firms that have fallen on hard times and then turning them around. So otherwise referred to as turn um, turnaround firms. And um, they were looking to take over GKN, which um, is a very old UK company that has um, various histories and lines of uh, business attributed to it, but um, has contracts and links to munitions and uh, the defense sector so in the news at the time there was a uh, concern over the prospect of a firm which has its as its sole purpose really uh, you know turning around the fortunes of a firm taking over a British institution GKN that had fallen on hard times uh, there was concerns raised over uh, employment, over the pensions for workers, how Melrose would treat that, uh, treat those issues um, if the deal were to be finalized. Mostly there was opposition from uh, Unite the Union uh, with regards to workers' rights and they wanted some assurances from Melrose that there you know the, the employees would be taken care of but also arguing this point that because gkn had already established some links uh, with the the ministry of defense and it had uh, various defense contracts uh, it may raise national security issues if melrose were to take over gkn under uk merger control law As I say, most of the time mergers are assessed according to whether or not they are going to have a substantial lessening of competition in the market. But there are a number of reserved public interest grounds under the Enterprise Act, which enable the Secretary of State for business usually to intervene on the merger to take it away from the competition authority and essentially established, looking at evidence of competition effects, looking at evidence of public interest, including national security, whether or not this merger should be allowed to proceed. And so this is the ground that um, the Labour Party and Unite were seeking to lobby uh, the government on, that they should be looking to review this merger according to national security grounds. I'd, uh, because of Unite's role in this, myself being um, a fan of the Smiths, uh, I'd previously titled this blog post as Stock Pickers of the World, Unite and Take Over, which was unfortunately vetoed uh, by uh, yes, the, the blog editors, uh, which was unfortunate, I felt. But uh, maybe in uh, hindsight, it was the right uh, course of action because I think that uh, if you Google... Uh, GKN and Melrose, it's one of the top hits, Uh, so that's a a positive at least. So, so the the blog post at the time uh, came before there was any public interest review of the case, but I wanted to probe the legitimacy of uh, blocking that merger on national security grounds because Labour and Unite were calling for a national security review which um, you know very may uh, may very well have been uh, credible, but I just wanted to get into the crux of what was the likely outcome here. What would uh, the Secretary of State ultimately decide, or what was the Secretary of State at the time able to decide with regards to this merger? The other part of the blog post was attempting to use this as an opportunity to comment on foreign investment generally. The Melrose GKN case is not uh, an example of a foreign takeover. Melrose is actually uh, a London-based firm, uh, although it does engage in a number of activities around the world. Um, But at the time, the government had introduced a green paper shortly followed by a white paper which was suggesting that more should be done to scrutinise foreign takeovers of UK firms on national security grounds and I provide a little bit of comment on that uh, which is associated with another paper which I ended up writing a few months later. Thank you
0: very much um, for that Dave. I wanted to pinpoint um, the section where you spoke about public interest and public opinion. Um, You specifically talk about the um, Cadbury's acquisition by Kraft, which happened 10 years ago now, which seems scary because I remember it happening. I wasn't that old, but I remember it kind of shook, it shook the nation that and I remember, I don't know whether it was just because I live fairly near Bourneville, but it felt like everyone was going around and saying that Cadbury's didn't taste the same and that they were <laughs> going to boycott the company. What problems, do you want to clear that up? What were the actual problems surrounding the acquisition?
1: Thanks, dude. yeah, no, I've, I've, I, do. I personally think that the the chocolate tastes different, doesn't it? To it, me, it seems to. Um, you can. Alky's better, anyway, <laughs> in my opinion. I, I reckon that um, yeah, you know, we can sort of factor in the shrinkflation uh, phenomenon at the same time. But uh, I, I definitely feel the chocolate tastes different. But yes, um, that when when thinking about foreign takeovers in the UK context, probably the most famous one or infamous one, if you will is the acquisition of Cadbury by Kraft. Cadbury is what you would call um, in uh, the literary term, a crown jewel firm. There's a lot of goodwill attributed to it. Um, and so the second that there's any interest in a firm that can be classed as a crown jewel firm being taken over by uh, a firm from another jurisdiction, it, you know, it has caused unrest so I think that from well this my my, my personal view and I'm sure, I think this would be shared by a number of people is that you can probably trace back skepticism of foreign takers in the UK to that particular uh, case of Kraft Cadbury um it involved as I say an instance where you have yeah the crown jewel firm Cadbury who at the time was uh in the midst of deciding on the future of some of its operations and its viability. Uh, this included considering whether or not to uh, continue operating at the Summerdale uh, plant. Uh, so a lot of concern about potential redundancies there. Uh, then you have a large US firm, uh, Kraft, who come in, they, they uh, launch a bid. And there was an initial outcry, obviously, because of um, the the fact that you know Cadbury was would no longer be in British ownership were this to uh, this deal were allowed through. But to sweeten the deal, I do you know I, I just reluctantly said that that wasn't meant as a pun, but to, to sweeten the deal, um, Kraft committed to keeping this uh, this factory open and so that would have the effect of saving a number of jobs. Once the takeover was concluded, uh, that's the point where Kraft really got sight of the books and actually saw that uh, keeping the Somerdale plant open was unviable. And so the factory did ultimately have to close down. That, you can imagine, is something that a number of uh, British newspapers jumped on. And there was uh, a large outcry, um, certainly locally, but also you know, across the country. And so that led to a lot of discussion over and, and calls from politicians on the you know, perceived need to review and scrutinise foreign takeovers differently to domestic takeovers. We're going to sort of wrap up
2: that the questions on the blog um, by asking has there been any development since the blog? Um, have there been any notable mergers?
1: Yep, um, very good question, Matt. Uh, so there, there have been developments in, from the blog in the sense that uh, the merger between Melrose and GKN did indeed take place. Uh, it was subject to an in, a public interest intervention by the Secretary of State. Um, but no national security concern uh, was found. There, was, there were commitments made by Melrose to ensure that, uh, well, you're committing to um, issues in relation to investment in pensions, keeping the headquarters of Melrose in the UK, not selling off parts of uh, GKN for a, a particular period of time Uh, which, again, is something that um, Melrose had as part of its turnaround activities done so in the past to essentially turn around the fortunes of a firm and then sell to the highest bidder, um, which was its um, uh, modus operandi, usually. Um, More recently, I'd caught in the news that Melrose is now beginning to engage in discussions around um, divesting parts of uh, GKN, um, I'd read an article, a news, newspaper article not too long ago, which um, seemed to suggest that we're in negotiations between uh, Melrose and a US investment firm. And so it seems as though it's playing out as anticipated, um, but I'm not as entirely certain uh, at this stage uh, to what extent GKN will uh, you know, be sold off uh, for the, the sum of its parts. Um, more mergers are now subject to national security investment. And that's been because of recent changes to the Enterprise Act, which allow for mergers in certain sectors, usually uh, digital sectors, uh, to be reviewed, uh, even if they're very small mergers. Um, Previously, there was a requirement in those sectors and across all sectors um, to meet certain turnover thresholds, including um, a... Uh, aggregate turnover of £70 million. Uh, I think that's been reduced to £1 million under the reforms for these particular sectors. These are all feeding into something which has been on the agenda for a while, which is the National Security and Investment Bill, which was set to be uh, tabled this year. But I think that um, it's been pushed down the road because of um, obviously other pressing concerns that have uh, Uh, maybe taken priority, but that should be released at some point in 2021, I would imagine. And that is supposed to uh, bring together the reforms that have taken place more recently with regard to ensuring that National Security Review captures a broader range of mergers, and that as such will apply to a broader range of foreign investments. Uh, But it also stands to Uh, take on a number of more substantive provisions, and uh, we're yet to hear exactly what those will look like. My hope is that uh, the bill will give greater thought to the decision-maker who is actually making the final decision whether or not a um, a particular merger should be blocked or permitted on national security grounds, because it seems to me a, a true conflict of interest for... Uh, the business secretary to have the responsibility to do that and also to negotiate uh, deals as part of the industrial strategies no, Thanks Thanks for that Dave um, Yeah so I'd like to finish by
2: thanking Dave um, for coming on to the podcast today, hope you've enjoyed it, um, it's been, been fantastic. really good to thanks. talk to you Yeah it's been really good to talk to you some really interesting stuff there and it's been good to hear about your um, career I guess, especially now that you're teaching me and Eve. Um so thanks for coming on <laughs> Um, and thanks everyone for listening. Um, and if you are a legal academic or professional who is interested in getting involved and in being a guest on the Northeast Law of podcast, please email nelr at newcastle.ac.uk. Um, and yeah, thanks for myself. Uh, thank, thank you very much, Dave. And thanks everyone for listening.